Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Captain Paul Watson. Can you uh, give us a little bit of a brief bio about you? I was one of the co-founders of Greenpeace. That was uh, 50 years ago this month, actually, in 1971. And uh, I left Greenpeace in 1977 to uh, establish the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. And the difference being is that we intervene. We don't protest. And uh, I also set it up with a specific strategy, which I called uh, aggressive nonviolence. Not going to hurt anybody, but we're certainly going to be aggressive. And after uh, all these years, over four decades, we haven't caused an injury to anybody, and uh, we've shut down hundreds of illegal operations. Awesome. Um, so I initially kind of found out about Sea Shepherd through a Netflix special called Sea Spiracy, which I was pretty captivated by. Um, but before we get into to Sea Shepherd, how um, how'd you begin building your awareness and your affinity for animals and environment? Well, that goes back 60 years, actually, because I, uh, uh, when I was 10 years old, I spent a summer swimming with a family of beavers in eastern Canada, where I was raised, and uh, I had a great time. But the next summer when I went there, I the beavers were gone. Uh, they had all been killed by trappers uh, that winter. That made me very angry. So uh, that winter, I began to walk those trap lines and free the animals and destroy the traps. And I guess I've been doing the same thing ever since. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's that's one way to get started. What um, what did you do in, in high school to kind of prepare yourself? What were your the topics that you enjoyed learning about? Well, actually, I dropped out of high school. I ran away to sea. I, <laughs> I uh, joined the Norwegian Merchant Marine at uh, 17. Uh, I was in the Swedish Merchant Marine. Then I was in the Canadian Coast Guard. Then I went to uh, Simon Fraser University as a mature student, uh, majoring in communications. Got it pretty uh eventful <laughs> late teenage life um yeah. your merchant time with the merchant marines is that kind of what started you on the path to be eventually becoming the, the captain of your own ship and fleet well certainly yes it was i got me the, i got the sea time there and uh these this is ocean going i mean uh, our first Canada trip was across the pacific the indian ocean iran um south africa mozambique japan and that so uh it was a lot of uh, deep sea experience and uh so been doing that ever since too <laughs> <laughs> what was uh i guess what was your primary goal or, or interest for joining joining the merchant marines like i'm not entirely aware of what the merchant marines do can you elaborate a little bit on what the their causes or what their their objectives are well it's a uh, really merchant vessels uh, you know delivering everything from okay. well, delivering grain and lumber and paper and potash and sulfur and uh, you know i was working on bulk carriers actually and uh, so that took us to places that you would never go to if you were a, a tourist. I mean, I spent three months in Bandar Shapur, Iran, which was sort of the armpit of the planet at the time. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, but I went there for the adventure. I was an adventurer. And um, that's why, you know, it wasn't the job wasn't important to me. The, uh, the travel was what was important. And also the, the experience in the sea time. Is there a part of the world that you haven't seen in your travels? <laughs> 
Not really. I've been to Antarctica. I've been to the Arctic. Uh, a couple of countries. I've been to Hong Kong, but I've never really been into China uh, or India. And the reason being is I just don't like to go places where there's a lot of people, <laughs> you know. So that doesn't really attract me very much. My favorite place is Antarctica, where there's very few people. <laughs> right. <laughs> or the Arctic, where it's just really frigid. What is, what is it like, or, or for you as a you know, 17, 18-year-old, what was it like to, to be seabound for periods of time. Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. I, uh, I, I, re I remember reading Joseph Conrad's Typhoon well in the middle of a typhoon in the South China Sea. Now, you can't get better ambiance than that. <laughs> uh, is that what you kind of spent your time doing, was learning the different aspects of the ship and, and reading, I guess? Yeah, working. I started off as an ordinary seaman, working your way up to able seaman, that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, doing a lot of reading, but also, you know, just seeing the world. You know, I got to see places. I was in I was in Mozambique during the Frelimo Revolution, so I was there when that that was happening, and the fall of uh, Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe. I was in South Africa during apartheid. Got to experience that. In fact, I wrote an article. I was writing at the same time. I wrote an article about Nelson Mandela in 1972, and uh, I mean, who would have dreamt that in in 1972, who could even think of that he would ever be president of South Africa? But that actually, uh, it was a lesson for me. It just shows you that the, the impossible can become possible. So what was your, your next step? And you said you were part of the, the Canadian uh, Navy. Was that? No, no Canadian Coast, Coast Guard. Guard which, sorry. Um, which, by the way, in Canada is not military. <laughs> Did that coincide with time with Greenpeace or with starting up Sea Shepherd or anything, or is it separate? It was sort of after, uh, I, how I got started with Greenpeace is I, when I came back on, on a Norwegian ship, I was in Vancouver and there was a demonstration at the, the U.S.-Canada border against the nuclear testing at Amchitka Island. And uh, I went to that protest. Uh, it was organized by the Sierra Club and by uh, the Quakers. Now, there, the, the Quakers there because of peace, the peace issue, and uh, the Sierra Club because of the environmental issue. I was there for a completely different reason. That is that Amchika was a wildlife preserve. You couldn't take a gun onto the island, but here you are blowing up a five megaton bomb underneath of it. And that killed a lot of sea lions and sea otters uh, in previous tests. So that's my was my motivation for getting involved. And uh, we set up this group out of that demonstration called uh, the Don't Make a wave committee and that's because uh people were still remembered the tsunami of 1964 from the anchorage earthquake which hit honolulu also hit vancouver island and uh so we uh set up this group called the don't make a wave committee and the idea was to get a boat to sail up where the bomb site was and that came from the quakers who had done that in 1956 at the bikini atoll so we we're going to do the same thing and so we uh got a boat uh, the greenpeace and how that got its name was that at one of the early meetings somebody left and flashed a peace sign and and bill darnell said um, make it a greenpeace and bob hunter said hey great name for the boat so uh <laughs> we named it the greenpeace the boat and it wasn't until 72 that we changed the name of the don't make a wave committee to the greenpeace foundation got it uh, so they went up in October of, uh, of 71, but uh, they delayed the bomb uh, blast and uh, it didn't go off. So we organized a second ship, the Greenpeace 2, which we spelled T-O-O, and I was a crew member on the Greenpeace 2. Uh, so we headed up in November in the, like the worst possible time across the Gulf of Alaska, and we were slowed down there. But what they did there was they, they 
blew the bomb off ahead of time so that uh, we were still 500 miles away from it. it. So we didn't stop the blast, but actually there was no more testing after that. Uh, The publicity was overwhelming and... uh, and uh, I think we we were successful in, in, in getting that, focusing that publicity towards uh, ending that, those nuclear tests. How long did you, you were with Greenpeace for about five years and then you kind of went to a different direction? Um, I was with Greenpeace for seven years. Seven years. Yeah. What happened, the first uh, schism within Greenpeace was in 74 when Bob Hunter, Paul Spong, and myself wanted to go protect whales from the Russian whaling fleet. And uh, that's where the, the split became, came because the Quakers didn't want anything to do with that. Uh, and I can understand why, because the Yankee whaling fleet was owned by the Quakers. I don't know. But uh, they didn't want anything to do with it. So it, we went two separate ways. Basically, the Quakers dropped out. And uh, Greenpeace went in that direction under the guidance of Robert Hunter, who was actually, if it wasn't for Bob Hunter, there wouldn't be a Greenpeace today. And uh, so he organized that uh, first whale campaign. Uh, and uh, it was the Greenpeace 5 and the Greenpeace 7. Those are the boats that we sent up there, called it Bro- Project Ahab. And we went out to search for the Russian whaling fleet, and uh, we searched for uh, three months until we found the fleet uh, 60 miles off of Mendocino, California, and uh, we confronted them. And this was before the 200-mile limit, so that's how, how they, they could be there. And uh, at one point, Bob and I were in a small inflatable boat, and the tactic, we were reading a lot of Gandhi at the time, the tactic was to uh, put our bodies between the harpoon and the whales, and that would keep them from shooting at the whales. So we found ourselves in front of, uh, you know, the Soviet harpoon vessel was bearing down on eight uh, magnificent sperm whales uh, that were fleeing for their life. And every time the harpooner tried to get a shot, I would maneuver the boat and block it. And this worked for about 20 minutes until the captain came running down the catwalk and uh, screamed into the ear of the of the harpooner, looked down on us, smiled, and brought his finger across his neck like that. That's when I realized Gandhi wasn't going to work that day. And uh, a few moments later, there was a horrendous explosion. Uh, the harpoon flew over her head, slammed into the backside of a female in the pod, and she screamed, rolled on her side, blood everywhere. And suddenly the largest whale in the pod rose up, slapped the water with his uh, tail, and disappeared swam right underneath of us and threw himself at the bow of the Soviet harpoon vessel. But they were waiting for him with an unattached harpoon, hit him point blank in the head. He fell back, rolling in agony on the surface, blood everywhere. And as he did, I caught his eye. And uh, he dove again. This time I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming at us real fast. And he came up and out of the water at an angle. So the next move would come down right on top of us. And as his head rose up out of the water and I looked into his eye, that's what really changed my life forever because I saw understanding. I felt understanding. That whale understood what we were trying to do. And how do I know that? Because I could see the effort that he made to pull himself back. And instead of falling on top of us, he went backwards. His eye disappeared beneath the surface and he died. Could have killed the two of us, but uh, he didn't. So I'm indebted to that whale for the fact that I'm still alive. Uh, but also, as I sat there and the sun was going down in the midst of the Russian whaling fleet, and I said, why? are we killing these whales? You don't eat them. The Russians are killing them for sperm oil and spermaceti oil, which is highly prized for high heat-resistant lubricating oil. And one of the things it was most prized for was the maintenance and construction and maintenance of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said, here we are destroying this incredibly beautiful, intelligent, self-aware, sentient creature for the purpose of making a weapon meant for mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it just struck me, we're insane. We're totally insane as a species. And from that moment on, I said, I don't do this for for us. I do that for them. And so for the last, uh, well, since 1975, I've 
spent all my time working to protect marine wildlife uh, from ourselves. Can you, you mentioned the 200 mile limit. Can, what exactly is that? Well, up until, um, well, 1973, there was a territorial limit was only three miles. How, how territorial limits were first started was that was how far a cannon could fire. And then Napoleon's cannons could fire 12 miles. So then we had the 12 mile limit. So the 12 mile limit was in effect until 73. And that was when the British and the Icelanders got into a big battle over cod fishing rights. And the, and the Icelanders declared a 50 mile limit. And that's what caused the cod war and the big confrontations between the two countries. But all that got into a law of the sea conference. And finally in uh, about 1976 or 77, just shortly after what, what were when we were out there, uh, the um, the United Nations uh, established uh, the, the 200 mile limit. That is the 200 economic exclusion zone, which is now in every country now has that. So uh, that means that all the waters out to 200 miles belong uh, the territory of that country, and so that actually made enforcement a lot easier on on stopping a lot of these things. You know, you know, I I, I remember the Russian and Chinese uh, drag trawler fleets operating within sight of the la- of land in California and Oregon. That's how close they were wow. taking everything they could find. Uh, so that really changed all of that after the 200 mile limit was brought in. So the the myth, of, I guess it is a myth of international water starting seven miles out from land is. It's not a myth. It's not seven miles either. It's actually 12 miles. Well, okay. it's actually three miles. It's 12 miles. <laughs> There, there are different rules. For instance, for legal purposes, uh, for crimes or whatever, three miles, 12 miles, or different breakdowns, the 200-mile limit is an economic exclusion zone. Okay. That means fishing, mining, anything where no other country can come into those waters and exploit those waters for profit. That's what that is. Got it. But uh, it's different than the, the, the rules of a 12-mile limit, for okay. instance. Uh, uh, ships are quite freely allowed to come within... Um, within 200 miles of coast, of course. It's called right of free passage. In fact, ships are even allowed to come into the 12-mile limit on right of free passage, as long as they don't stop and <laughs> keep going. If they stop, they have to declare entrance. They have to, you know, to get a clearance to come in. Um, you also mentioned uh, something about it, the, the sea conference. Who, I guess, who is involved in, in making up these the rules of the water, so to speak? Well, that was a United Nations uh, okay. uh, over that. And uh, the other thing that we employed is in 1985, the UN uh, established the uh, internet, the um, UN, comp, uh, what's it, the Converse, Conservation of Nature. So it's, uh, it was a special rule that said individuals, uh, individuals have the right, organizations have the right to uphold international conservation law on the high seas, outside, beyond jurisdictions. And so that that's helped us considerably. That's what Sea Shepherd has done. And I've used that in legal cases. That uh, It's called the UN Charter for Nature. And Section 21E of the UN Charter for Nature says that individuals have the right to intervene uh, beyond international, uh, beyond economic jurisdictions. Got it, because you're not operating as under, the, under a government or with a, right. a corporate behind you. Really what you have is the Wild West out there. <laughs> you have all sorts of treaties and everything like that. But outside, beyond 200-mile limits, people do whatever they want. Right. Uh, so you're really subject only to your flag. That is uh, the laws of the flag state. What Sea Shepherd has done, so starting in 1999, is quite unique. No, And that is, in 1999, we entered into a partnership with Ecuador to protect the Galapagos Park. And so we're, we're, we're going out and intervening against poachers in within 60 miles of the Galapagos, that's the boundary of the park. Uh, 
But since then, uh, we now today have uh, partnerships with numerous governments uh, in with Colombia, with Peru, uh, with Mexico and Panama uh, here and in Africa with about a dozen different African countries, starting with Liberia, uh, Gabon, uh, Santomi, Cape Verde, Tanzania, Namibia. Uh, so what that means is in those countries, our ships, our volunteers can operate, but we operate with enforcement agencies from those countries on board. Got it. So uh, we, we don't carry weapons. Our only weapon is really a camera, which I think is the most powerful weapon in the world, really. Especially these days. But, uh, but the, the enforcement agencies that come with this, so whether they be Navy or fisheries or whatever, or police, uh, we work with them. They do that. For instance, we're also in a partnership with uh, the, the police officers in Sicily, for instance, who are going after poachers there. And we've attracted a lot of, one of our captains actually is the former chief of staff of the Italian Navy, a former admiral. So we're attracting a lot of very talented people. If I can pump up for a second, what kind of poaching goes on in Sicily? Uh, well, the poaching within the waters, fish, fish okay. poaching. Right now we have two ships in the Mediterranean, and what they're doing is confiscating FADs called fish aggregating devices, which are set illegally in the Mediterranean. I've taken, I think we've taken 1,700 of them out of the Mediterranean in the last year. Wow. And they're totally illegal, so uh, we, we do that. I've, do you try and, I'm guessing you try and keep on top of the way that some of these commercial fishing, fishing vessels um, attempt to skirt laws and things like that to um. one of the in 2015 we had the longest pursuit of a poacher in maritime history it's actually a documentary and a, and a couple of books about it called uh, chasing thunder the thunder was a toothfish poaching vessel which goes down to uh, the water southern ocean around the coast of antarctica to take patagonia and antarctic toothfish might not have heard them but you probably heard of chilean sea bass yes. that's what it is Okay. It's not. It's not a bass. It's not from Chile. It's actually from Antarctica. It's endangered, and uh, it's illegal. Now there were six vessels down there, uh, called the Bandit Six. We called them, and they were nobody was doing anything about it because it was outside of anybody's jurisdiction. So we decided to go against them. Interpol had purple notices out against them, saying that they what they were doing was illegal, and we found the the Thunder, the most notorious of all. And as soon as it saw, uh, we, we sent two ships. As soon as they saw our first vessel, the Bob Barker, they dropped their net and ran, and the Bob Barker pursued it. That was the longest pursuit in maritime history for a poacher. It was 110 days from Antarctica. We chased them all the way up into the Indian Ocean, then around to equatorial West Africa. And uh, they dropped their net. Our second vessel pulled that net up. It was 72 kilometers long, weighed 70 tons, and it took us 200 hours to pull it out. And, uh, so that was the evidence, and we chased it, and the two ships got on to the end. The Thunder captain sank his own ship uh, in the waters of San Tome because there was nowhere for him to go. Interpol was now cooperating with us. They couldn't go anywhere. So to destroy the evidence, he sank his own ship. We had to rescue his crew, 42 of them. But, he did, but we also boarded his sinking ship. And we got the evidence. We got his computers and his logbooks and samples of the fish and everything before the ship went down. The captain ended up going to prison for three years, the two officers for three years, and the uh, company was fined 17 million euros and also the loss of the ship, and they didn't get insurance for it. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the Bob Barker. I-, I was looking through your fleet, and you've got a couple of names of um, – some are historically uh, referenced, some are more um, modern people, and then, you, you know, like you said, Bob Barker – how do you designate the names of the of the ships in your fleet? Well, they buy the ships. Okay. <laughs> Bob 
Barker gave us $5.2 million. Wow. And we bought a ship in a helicopter with that. Uh, Sam Simon, co-creator of The Simpsons, he, he sponsored the Sam Simon. The Sea Eagle in the Mediterranean right now is sponsored by the Allianz Insurance Company. And uh, Chris Sharp, who has a company in California, he sponsors our vessel, the, the uh, Sharpie. Got it. <laughs> Farley Mowat, oh, Martin Sheen, of course, you know, our research vessel is called the Martin Sheen. Uh, Farley Mowat was uh, one of our big patrons also. So this is how people, uh, anybody can actually get a ship named after them if they donate the ship to us. Got it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, what kind of research do you typically do? I mean, obviously you have a couple of different ships that I'm guessing are specialized for a specific type of research. Um, are you tracing and, and monitoring like the species to see how close they are to becoming endangered? Are you specifically looking at coral things or what aspect, or is it kind of just depending on the situation? Our, research, our primary research vessel is the uh, Martin Sheen, which is a sailing vessel. And uh, we've done everything from coral propagation, investigating fish farms in British Columbia, to um, actually last November, we discovered a new species of beaked whale, which is amazing. I didn't think you could actually discover a new species, but we did uh, uh, in the waters off of western uh, Mexico. And uh, so that was a, a great achievement. And uh, our scientific team, you know, was getting a, <laughs> certainly getting the honors for that. Eva Hidalgo, who was from Barcelona, she led that uh, campaign for us. And uh, so that's the kind of, you know, we do that. We have that one vessel. That's uh, that's what it does. You know, you can't really interfere with a poacher with a sailing vessel. Right. So we do we do research on it. Um, do you do they typically travel with like close proximity to each other or are two ships together at all times in case no, they run no. into things or are they kind of? Separate. Right now, we have two ships, the, Con the Conrad and the uh, Sea Eagle in the Mediterranean. We have the Emanuel uh, Bronner is in the Baltic. Uh, the Sam Simon and the Bob Barker are in the waters of West Africa. The Sharpie and the Farley Mowat, uh, the West Holly, and, uh, are in the waters of Sea of Cortez, protecting the endangered Bakita porpoise. And uh, the Ocean Warrior, which is uh, our, our actually flagship, it... Uh, it was recently came from investigating the uh, illegal Chinese fishing operations in the eastern tropical Pacific and is now in the waters of Panama, working, we're working with Panama. So, uh, and the Martin Sheen's in Mexico working uh, on, on research uh, projects there. Got it. When you see things um, similar to the incident that happened a few months back in the Gulf of Mexico, I, I mean, the picture and the footage that I remember literally looked like a gateway to hell when one of the... Um, I believe it was a gas line exploded, and literally the sea was on fire. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly. Well, you're talking about the ex, uh, the um, in the Gulf of Mexico. That I believe it was the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. The, the um, horizon, uh, yeah, the, the big major spill, right? Well, there was a yeah. Big we were doing. There was the big yeah, spill. We had our, Sorry. <laughs> we had one of our best down there doing a, a research into the impact of that spill on on, on marine mammals. Got it. I'm sure that's had a catastrophic impact, mm -hmm. just like they always do. Um, what kind of things would you start working with uh, in regards to foreign nations to get them to be a little more aware of the destructive nature that's going on with the sea ecology and, and how devastating that can be for humans and, and the land people, uh, land animals? You say poorer nations? Uh, all nations. Oh, yeah. Specifically, the, uh, the more wealthy ones that you know could probably actually do something about it. Yeah, the more wealthy ones are the problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the the greediest fishing fleets are coming out of Europe, Japan, China. You know, the, the, this is where the real problems are. Uh, the Spanish fleet, uh, fishing fleet is horrendous. It, it's run by what we call the Galician Mafia in, in, uh, in, in Galicia. Uh, for instance, the Thunder was owned by... Uh, Amadoris, uh, Videl Amadoris is a company, and uh, we took him to, to uh, court. But every time we go to court in Spain, the, the, the judges just let it go. They say, oh, we don't have the jurisdiction, that kind of thing. So it's, it's very difficult. And you're, you're, the problem is, is all these industrialized fishing operations are heavily subsidized. They couldn't exist without government subsidies. If you ended government subsidies today, highly mechanized industrialized fishing operations would shut down. Now, the fishing industry would like you to think that, you know, they're constantly coming out when we did Sea Spiracy, and they said, you know, you can't tell people to give up eating fish. I mean, a billion people depend upon eating fish, and that's true, but we're not we're not going after them. We're not going after people in Ghana right. going in their canoes. We're not going after people in India and that. We're going out in super trawlers, 100-mile-long long lines, 100-mile-long drip nets, um, giant drag trawlers. This is the problem. Right. And uh, I don't think that in this day and age that we should be catching a fish in the waters of the Southern Ocean and around the coast of Antarctica, taking that fish and sending it to Denver and Paris and New York uh, to, to, you know, for, to serve, serve in restaurants. I mean, that's, that's just too high of a carbon footprint. And also, it's, it's threatening endangered species. But here's the problem. The fishing industry overall has this thing which I call the economics of extinction. They don't care if the species goes extinct as long as they can make the maximum amount of profit on the on short-term investments that they do in. For instance, Mitsubishi alone, one company, they have warehouses in Japan with enough bluefin tuna to supply their customer base for the next 15 years. So if they stop fishing right now on bluefin tuna, they could still supply their, their market, but they won't do it. And the reason being is if they did do that and the populations of bluefin begin to recover in the, in the ocean, that will lower the price of the commodity in the warehouses. The price will go down. They need scarcity in order to keep the prices high. The fishing industry wants to keep those prices high. That's why, you know, I was raised in a fishing village in eastern Canada. I mean, it's absolutely absurd to see how much fish costs now to what it was then. I mean, right. I was raised in a lobster town. Poor kids in our family, in our, in our town, I was one of them, you could always tell the poor kids, we went to school with lobster sandwiches on homemade bread trying desperately to trade them for a bologna on wonder, which we thought was exotic, <laughs> you know. But uh, so it's amazing, uh, you know, how people have adapted to that. I call that adaptation to diminishment, that not only we, we, as things become less and less, we just accept it more and more. 1965, the very idea that you'd be buying water in plastic bottles and paying <laughs> more for that water than the equivalent amount of gasoline was and crazy. Nobody's going to do that. Right. And yet here we are. We don't even question. In New York City, I was in New York City in a in a hotel, and there's a liter of water for twelve dollars. That's forty eight dollars a gallon. In a city that has the cleanest drinking water coming out of its taps anywhere in the country, <laughs> you know, you could bottle New York City water, and it would be cleaner than the bottled water you're buying. I I, I laugh at that whole preface of, of expensive water. I was. Fortunate enough to go to, to Woodstock 99 and the debacle that that turned into be, uh, specifically, you know, charging four or five dollars for an, was a 12 ounce bottle of water. So, so I totally get get that. Um, your advocacy is really for pushing so people are aware of the damage that commercial fishing does, not only to the species, but to the earth. And for anyone that hasn't seen Sea Spiracy, 
I got a lot out of it. I and that that was one of the big things I took is that it's the damage that they're doing to both the earth and to the species. Aside from the magic wand of ending commercial fishing, um, what else can people do to, I guess, help facilitate the healing of the earth and, and allowing the species to start thriving again? Well, in addition to not cons- over-consuming uh, and just dis- diminishing biodiversity uh, in the ocean, we also shouldn't be dumping single-use plastics, any plastics, uh, chemical pollution, radiation pollution, uh, climate change is causing acidification. There are so many things. Here's the most alarming thing that most people aren't aware of. Since 1950, and you can verify this with Scientific America, uh, they had an article uh, on this. Since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. Phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen in the air that we breathe. If phytoplankton were to go extinct, all those species go extinct, we would die. We don't live on this planet without phytoplankton. In fact, life would be severely altered for almost every living thing. But why is phytoplankton going being diminished? Because phytoplankton needs two nutrients, primary nutrients, in order to survive. Iron, nitrogen. Where do they get it? From the feces of marine mammals, seabirds, and fish. When you diminish those animals, those species, you diminish phytoplankton. Every day, one blue whale dumps or defecates three tons onto the surface, and it floats and that's heavily rich in nitrogen and iron. And the far- so whales are really the farmers of the ocean. Their crop, phytoplankton. Got it. <laughs> and phytoplankton not only provides the oxygen that we need, but also does two other things. It is the foundation of the food chain, uh, the pyramid in the, in the ocean. It feeds everything else. Plus, uh, it sequesters carbon like nothing else, <laughs> really. So really? those three main functions are what are being severely diminished because of the diminishment of phytoplankton populations. But we don't really give it much thought, really, uh, because, you know, phytoplankton, they're tiny microscopic plants and, you know, phyto- and zooplankton, microscopic plant animals. We just don't give it any thought and everything. Uh, the problem is we tend to focus on big animals, elephants or whales and things like that. And we, we don't understand that the most important species on this planet are the small ones. Um, if you look at it this way, the, uh, this is what the, this planet is. This planet is a spaceship, <laughs> and it's an incredible voyage around the, the Milky Way galaxy. And every spaceship has a life support system. It has to. That life support system provides us with the air we breathe, the food we eat, and regulates climate and temperature. That life support system is maintained by a crew, a crew of living beings. Not us. We're, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time entertaining ourselves, but we're not the crew. But what we're doing is murdering the crew. We're killing the crew. Everything from the bees to the worms to the bacteria to the fungus to, to, to phytoplankton and everything. And there's uh, so many crew members you can kill before this machinery begins to break down. And uh, that that's, is disastrous. And we're seeing that right now. It's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is humans, again, we have this ability to adapt to diminishment. So what we do is we accept we just simply say, oh, yes, well, things will get better. Technology will solve this or, you know, it's in God's hands or something like this. You know, you, you brought up climate change. Um, what are your thoughts on what I see as the anti-science movement that's going on? You know, the, the whole flat earth, the ideas that people deny climate is changing. You know, my understanding of it is just look at the, the weather patterns and, and the hurricanes and the storms that have occurred over the last 10, 15 years. You know, I, growing up, I don't recall hearing as many hurricanes coming up the East Coast or 
the severity with the frequency that we have now. Yeah. What are your thoughts on 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 that? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a growing problem, but uh, anti-science, well, anti-science movement's been around for centuries. <laughs> they used to burn people at the stake for just questioning what the earth True. going around <laughs> the sun. Uh, but I think the real problem is, is that uh, there's two really separate ways of looking at reality. Indigenous people have this point of view, which is called biocentrism. We're part of everything. We're part of it all. Everything's related. Western civilizations, or whatever, uh, so-called civilizations, have developed this thing called anthropocentrism. We're what's important. Everything revolves around us. Nothing else matters. We're so perfect that we've even made gods in our image, and then we worship those gods and everything. Every single religion on this planet, major religion, is anthropocentric. Every one of them puts uh, human beings at the center. And that's where the problem is. Biocentric philosophies don't do that. Right. They understand that we're related to all of these other species, or as the Iroquois say, all of our relations. And um, so this is, I think, a real problem. As long as, we ha uh, as we're polluted by anthropocentrism, we're not going to really make any significant change. And anthropocentrism is, by its nature, anti-science. Because it, it's, it says that we don't need all of this. We're, we're perfect. We're better. We're gods. <laughs> we're doing right. all this thing. How can we change that or at least would, get people to realize how bad of a thought process that is? Well, we could get rid of religion, but <laughs> I think that uh, by, by we could learn to indigenous cultures to teach us the ways. The Iroquois have this saying that make no decision in your life until you take into account the consequences of that decision, all future generations. Right. That, that itself would make a, a very big, big difference. That's one of the reasons Sea Shepherd is allied with the Maori in New Zealand, the Aboriginals in Australia. We work with the Kayapo and the Anamani in Brazil. Uh, we work with the Iroquois and specifically the Mohawks in, in, in North America because we feel they're, they're our teachers, really. And uh, we, we feel that uh, that, that is uh, the course of action that we really have to take is uh, a biocentric approach. Right. I, I... I love that philosophy and that, that mentality. Um, I grew up, I did some research into Native American beliefs and things like that and, and how they believed the absolute respect for the animals. Um, I like the idea of taking care of the earth. <laughs> um, I, I wish more people had your thought process and the concern for the the, the, the world over. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, if the fish aren't there, then the whales don't eat, whales don't eat, then as you have so eloquently explained, the world falls apart. Um, you've been awarded a number of accolades. Um, a couple of them I have. There we go. Um, one of the 50 people who could save the planet. What is your, I guess, more, which award or accolade are you most proud of having? I actually put the awards up in my bathroom in the office. <laughs> uh, it doesn't mean anything really in that. But um, oh. the thing I am most proud of is that I started an organization that today is a global movement. And you can shut down an individual like Japan has tried to stop me personally. You can shut down an organization when they tried to sue us in the U.S. But you can't shut down a movement. Sea Shepherd's now in 42 different countries, uh, growing all the time. Each of those are separate entities, independent from each other, but all working together. That is a movement. And I think that's the thing I'm most proud of. I, it's absolutely commendable. And, you know, you kind of pointed out that you had 
had some, uh, we'll call it, not so favorable opinions from Japan. Uh, you were red noticed by Interpol. Still, still <laughs> you, am. Still are. Is that just for Japan, or is that for Japan and, and Costa Rica still? Costa Rica dropped it when they had an election and got a new government, which just shows you how political it was. If it was judicial, they couldn't do that. Right. So no longer on Costa Rica's list. <laughs> but uh, Japan uh, the, Japan has made no movement to extradite me. They haven't applied to the U.S. or to when I was in France. They just want me on that list to harass me, really. The last thing I think they want is to have me in Japan. But uh, they just want to harass me on this. It's very it's, – I, I find it quite amusing. The, the red notice is for serial killers. It's for war criminals. It's for major drug traffickers. I'm the only person in history to be put on that list for conspiracy to trespass on a whaling ship. I didn't even do the trespassing. Just <laughs> conspiracy. Because you thought about it. <laughs> and conspiracy with myself because nobody else was charged. <laughs> but uh, Japan, we made them very angry. We cost them over $150 million in losses. We saved 6,500 uh, whales in the Southern Ocean, and uh, we shut them down. They're not there. The Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary is now 100% protected. So I guess it was a good trade-off. You know, they can put me on the red list, but they lost their, uh, they lost their uh, rights to, or they never had any rights, but they lost their operations in uh, Antarctica. Got it. Moving forward, what type of things are you guys working towards aside from continuing what you have already established? Is there anything specific that you guys are working towards? Most of our efforts is going into going after poachers, uh, you know, the, the, in, on the waters of Africa and Latin America. We're also trying to stop the uh, horrendous uh, slaughter of dolphins in the Faroe Islands and in Japan, in Taiji, Japan. Uh, we also uh, uh, confiscate plastic beaches. We've removed literally thousands and thousands of tons of plastic. from. We, we, we focus on remote beaches like northern Australia or Cocos Keeling Island. Or We took 40 tons of plastic off of Cocos Island, off of Costa Rica. Uh, so uh, that's one of the things that we, we do. And that, that's great because all of the chapters can get involved. Everybody can organize a, a beach cleanup. And right. we have, the we have, I think, 250 beach cleanups in the last week uh, around the world. Wow. And so this really, um, it's, a, it's a hands-on thing for people. People can get involved with Sea Shepherd. They can crew on the ships. They can be shore volunteers, and uh, or they can just be supporters. And the shore volunteers get involved in this hands-on thing with beach cleaning and stuff like that. Got it. I, I think my, my youngest kid might want to take a ride with you one time. He's uh, completely obsessed with anything that floats or flies. Um, oh, yeah? He's uh, 13 at the, at the moment, but he, he knows more about the Titanic and, and a handful of other sunken ships than... I, I ever knew it was possible <laughs> and it's all self-initiated he one day he just took a deep dive and he keeps on going further and further into knowing about ships and things like that so oh, good he might uh definitely have an interest in that one mm -hmm. um kind of jumping forward to the, the part where i ask some kind of random questions that you can either answer pass or whatever <laughs> um just but to Never pass on a question unless I don't <laughs> actually don't have an answer, which is rare, but you can try it. So is it, real quick, though, kind of before I jump into all the, the really fun questions, as a captain of a ship, do you have a favorite coffee mug? Have a, uh, no, not really. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anything that works? <laughs> <laughs> so the first question would be, uh, would you rather have a picnic on a beach or on the top of a mountain? Well, I don't know. Uh, uh, probably on a beach. <laughs> I kind of figured that would be the response. You I agree. I, there was something about the peacefulness of the waves coming. and Actually, uh, having a picnic one time really saved me legally. Really? Because 
They, way back in 1977, there was a protest against the Trident nuclear uh, base in, in Bangor, Washington, right? And then 700 people got arrested because they went over the fence. They all got charged with trespassing. I had a little rowboat with six people, and we rowed on to the beach. And we were met by 200 military police there with their riot gear and everything like this. And I stepped out of the thing, and, they say, and, I, and, and this is what saved me in court. I said, what's going on here? We just came for a picnic. <laughs> They didn't ask to see your picnic basket or anything. <laughs> well, we had we did have our lunch pile bills, but 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 the, <laughs> the point was is that it, it, in, when it got to court, it says, "Well, we we're just having a picnic. We didn't know these guys were going to be there." Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you rather be called weird or rude? Uh, neither. Uh, you know, I don't care really what people call me. They can call me rude. They can call me weird. I don't care. I'm uh, I'm I'm of the fan of, of being called weird. I've I've always told my kids if somebody calls you weird, thank them just because it's a shows you how different you are mm-hmm. not one of the pack uh would you rather walk on water or swim beneath the surface without needing oxygen well I'll probably swim on the surface uh under the under the surface sure certainly yeah i i agree with that it's some yeah, i just have to have the oxygen <laughs> i mean i've i've scuba dive uh, scuba dived a few times um in the caribbean and the first time i i really dove outside of the murky water in the northeast that we have up here was in Aruba. And mm-hmm. I was just blown away by the, the vibrant colors, the, the clarity of the water, it, just everything was, it was amazing. And if there's one experience I wish everybody could go through, it's being submerged and just seeing the life beneath the surface. It, it's just... If you ever get a chance, you should go to Cocos Island on Costa Rica or the Galapagos. That's some there those would definitely be on my bucket list <laughs> um let's see if you could talk to any species of animal what would it be well whales and dolphins but i think that uh that one day we will be able to do that how do you foresee that just um, through the science well, they're very developing? Com- they're complex uh they have very complex communications with each other uh and, and i think the problem is they're so complex that we can't really figure them out wrap our head around it yeah but uh they communicate in sound bites like our computers do really a lot of information in sound bites you know the english language has four hundred thousand words but humpback whale has about two million different vocal components in that uh so it's a very very complex thing and it's on levels higher and lower in sound frequency than anything that that we're we're capable uh but i think with the use of computers that we will be able to crack that that uh we'll be able to communicate with them i'm not sure we really want to hear what they have to say. Can't but, imagine uh, too happy with us. No. Uh, and they, you know, but they, probably the best sign of a, how intelligent they are is orcas. There has never been a case of an orca attacking and killing a human being in the wild. Never happened. And yet, the, you know, this is the most powerful, formidable predator on the planet. I have swum with orcas. I have grabbed the, the fin of orcas and been pulled through the water on them. You don't go up to a lion and pet it in the Serengeti, but I could do this. I mean, it's amazing. I've always, and, sorry to interrupt, I've always wondered how they got the label of being the killer whale. Because uh, they kill whales. But, but, but I, I mean, <laughs> I get that. But I mean, you know, they have this, this um, they're known for being, or at least people believe them to be vicious all around towards, towards anything and everything. Um, I've noticed that, or I read somewhere that when their fin is curved over, it, it shows, it's almost like a sign of depression. Um, 
No, when the fin is curved over, it's because they can't exercise, and that happens in marine aquariums where they can't, you know, they're, 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 these are animals used to swimming like, you know, 100 miles in a day, you know. Oh, wow. So they can't do that in their little oval concrete pools on that. But um, they, I think they're intelligent enough to realize what we are. And they just decided that this has got to have peaceful coexistence. You don't want to mess with these, this creature because it is a dangerous, dangerous creature. Uh, but, you know, when I was in the Coast Guard in the early 70s, I had a captain who swore that they ate people and he's seen it. Well, he's bullshit. He was just lying. <laughs> No, it's, uh, there's no evidence of that yeah. at all. The only orca, three people have been killed by an orca, uh, by Tilikum, uh, and one in, in, uh, and one other. And, you know, you don't go walk across the exercise uh, yard of a maximum security prison and turn your back on the inmates. If you keep a, an animal that intelligent into a situation like that, it's going to go crazy. Yeah. So really looking at whales which have been driven to uh, be, be psychopaths in a way. Right. And I'm surprised there hasn't been more uh, of this. I've definitely seen footage of, of orcas helping people, you know, stranded um, sailors and things like that. They help them to get to a vessel or they keep them afloat or, or things like that. So I, I firmly agree that orcas and, and dolphins and whales are have definitely shown their intelligence. You know, the only uh, known attack that I know is Captain Scott's people in Antarctica. Whales came up under the ice underneath of them and uh, knocked them off their feet. And But here's what happened. As soon as they noticed they weren't penguins, they went away. Yeah. I, I, to kind of circle back to the original question, I think I would have to say I like to talk to dogs just because I love dogs. <laughs> well, I always say to that people, dogs are smarter in this sense. They can come into a room and tell you who was there yesterday. Yes. You know, something that we, that we can't do. I had an argument with a, a whaler one time. He says, but Watson, you say that, you say whales are more intelligent than people. This is a stupid thing to say. And I said, well, you know, George, I measure intelligence by the ability to live in harmony with the natural world. And by that criteria, whales are far more intelligent than we are. And he said, well, by that criteria, cockroaches are more intelligent than we are. George, you're beginning to understand what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> I like that analogy. Um, if you had a warning label, what would you say? Warning label? Uh, I, I have no idea. I can't answer that. <laughs> I think mine would be the same that you see in the back of a fire truck. Keep 500 feet back. <laughs> um, I've greatly appreciate the conversation we've had. It was definitely enlightening, and I, I, I love what the goal that you guys have of, of trying to really bring awareness to people that, you know, commercial fishing is not the way to help our world. <laughs> um, you've have a, a number of books. Uh, you've actually just released one a few months ago. Can you jump into that a little bit? Well, I've had a couple in the last few months. One's called urgent, which is uh, basically it's a, uh, it's about climate change and the need to actually do something about it, but uh, there's only so much we can do. So a lot of it is how are we going to survive it? Right. Uh, the other one is called the death of a whale. And that is um, our campaigns to stop the Macaw Indians on the West coast of the United States from resurrecting whaling uh, in 98, 99. And we were working closely with the elders of the Macaw in order to, uh, to stop this whale hunt, which was not in accordance with tradition, uh, Macaw tradition. And so that that's what that book is called, The Death of a Whale. And that. And uh, also I have a book out called Earth Force, which is really just a book on strategy for uh, activists. Got it. Well, again, thank you very much. Is there anything that you want to promote for people to find you or ways to, to contact you if they wanted to become part of uh, Sea Shepherd? 
Oh, or easy to find, cshepherd.org website, or yeah, I have a Facebook page, anything, anything like that, Twitter, whatever. <laughs> Got it. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate the conversation. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.